beings of love and light everywhere and anywhere in the cosmos. Wataguan is Baraka Blue. This podcast is a beautiful and a special one. It might be my favorite one yet, although I love them all. Like my little children, it's hard to choose a favorite one. But this one was with someone named Virginia Aisha Gray Henry. And she is a woman who I met earlier this year at the American Academy of Religions conference. And we hit it off immediately. I walked up to her and said, are you uh, Aisha Gray Henry? She said, yes. I said, your publication, she has a uh, book company called Fons Vitae. I said, Fons Vitae has been my favorite publisher for over a decade. And so we sat down and we had a really, really amazing conversation then. And um, when I was in Louisville recently, I was able to visit her again and actually spend a few days with her. Um, at her home and with her family, which was amazing. But um, in spending that time with her, I was reflecting on the fact that it's amazing that I just met her this year, but she's been deeply influencing my life and my spiritual journey for over a decade through Fons Vitae. And it's amazing the effect that we can have on a human being or many human beings without uh, ever meeting them or before we ever meet them. So to sit down with her was amazing on that level personally, but also just because her life, her uh, journey was is so beautiful and so amazing. Um, she was making psychedelic films in New York City. Then she lived in Africa and the Middle East. She in the, I think, 60s and 70s, lived in Cairo for a decade, studied at Al-Azhar. She's a very close uh, student of Martin Lings, the amazing uh, author, writer, spiritual teacher Martin Lings, uh, master of Shakespeare as well. And so she's had a really, really amazing journey. But in addition to that, she's met like Everyone. She's close with the, the Dalai Lama. I mean, you talk about Houston Smith. She studied, uh, you know, mythology with the great mythologists and, you know, met the great spiritual masters from all across the world. And she's just a very unique and brilliant human being, like a ball of light and energy. Um, and I think that came across in this. But, um, I was so happy to just sit with her and I, I really learned from her and I felt like in this podcast like she was transmitting um, and really presenting so much of the valuable, valuable wisdom that she's imbibed and embodied. And it, it was just a, a candid and a sincere and an open from the heart. And that's what really struck me is how from the heart she, she was in this conversation and then just in every conversation I had with her off the mic as well. So I hope you enjoy that. Check out Fons Vitae. They're doing amazing work. They have a new project, a huge project that she's been working on, the Ghazali Children's Project, which is basically um, creating versions of the Ihya Ulumadin for children. So it's 40 books which touch on every aspect of life, um, outward and inward. Um, and she's making children's versions. So really like to guide spiritual beings 
and really just to protect their their fitrah, their their true nature, and to preserve that and encourage that to come out and to be maintained through their whole life. So it's an amazing project, and um, we talk a little bit about it, and you'll get to hear something about it. But I'll put the links um, on the SoundCloud page to the Ghazali project and to Fons Vitae and to her work so you can check it out. Thank you, everybody, for your continued support of the podcast. Um, at the end of the year and into the new year 2017, you can support the podcast through our Patreon site, which allows you to give a small amount monthly. Um, the link there is on our SoundCloud page. Um, and hopefully in the new year, one of my goals is to do this more often. We've been doing one a month, but, um, I've been trying to get a bunch of conversations recorded so that we can release them a little bit more frequently than that. Um, and we have some really cool ones coming up soon, including, uh, Kabir Helminski, who is a sheikh of the Mevlevi order. That's Rumi's order. One of the few American Mevlevi teachers, we had an amazing conversation. Um, Tyson Amir, who is a poet, an MC, and now an author. He just wrote a book called Black Boy Poems. I sat down with him when I was recently in Oakland. And many more um, cool podcasts. But uh, your support helps make that possible and helps us devote, devote more time and energy to bringing you path and present. One love. There was a Hindu master and a disciple came. And the master said, what are you looking for? And the master said, well, ultimately enlightenment. I mean, this disciple, ultimately enlightenment. The master said, well, you're wrong. And the disciple looked like what? And then the master said, you want it right now because we are living, as it were, in houses that are on fire. Mm. And I can tell you, I read Ghazali's Up, Up, and Away when I was 22. 50 years, I'm 73, have gone in one second. All that stuff you read about, you know, life is like the snow upon the desert's breast, you know, all that kind of, those incredible metaphors. And you know, when you're 18, 17, you read it. It's true, you recognize it. It's what Ghazali says, that the that tiffle, the essence of the child, we are all a child, and we do recognize the truths. We can't be taught those truths. You can barely teach a child manners, but they know when there's an injustice. They know when there's a, a, a truth, and we recognize the truths. And therefore, it's hyper-important, you know, while, while we're doing that, you know, to be able to actually act on them and not be so jaded. One of the issues I faced with looking at the condensation of the Ihya mm -hmm. into the book of knowledge, which, like the Fataha containing the Quran, contains everything that's to come. So it's not, it's not totally opened out, but it's enough. And so what happened is, is that I rewrote the children's book of knowledge 22 times. Mm. And it's still not good, but... At a certain point, you have to go with it. So what I noticed was, is that when we all know the, is it Hadith or Quran, I'm not sure, that the person who backbites, it's the same as eating that person's dead flesh. 
There's You hear Muslims saying this over and over again, just as Christians say, you know, if you don't have something good to say about someone, don't say it at all. This must be, exist in all the traditions. But never is such an image given as eating somebody's flesh, dead flesh. We don't hear that. And yet, everyone mentions it. You hear wonderful Muslims saying this. And what are people doing most of the time? Calling somebody a kafir. She doesn't dress right. He didn't do that. It's blah, blah, blah. It's like nonstop backbiting today mm-hmm. in all forms. You know, and so I, I found that in taking Ghazali, who's really hard to read, while I'm in one of his books or any of the great ones, Ibn Atallah, it's an ocean, and you're barely holding on, and you're not quite grasping. How can you grasp fully? You're not them. But you're in the beauty and the radiance of what they're saying. And like it's a heavenly state to be in those books. And I thought that if I just read Lives of Saints and read only this stuff, like I don't ever read novels, I don't read anything except saintly material, because I'm a slow reader and I'm influenced by what I read. So I don't have time to read anything that's down the road. So anyway, I had noticed that during these past 10, 20, 30 years, I had thought that if I just read this stuff and focused on it, it, I would absorb it and be that way. But I would find that when I shut a book, I was still me, the same old horrible me. And, you know, so when I started reducing this material to be able to say to a five or seven or nine-year-old, I was talking to myself because we don't speak in metaphysical, transcendent yet imminent when we're talking to ourselves. We think haste makes waste if we trip. We get it down to a little concentrated. And it has to be simple because we don't talk to ourselves except, isn't that interesting, in a really simple phraseology. So by reducing all this stuff, and doing it over and over again, I got it to the maxim that started to settle into the heart. And suddenly, one evening I was out with some friends, and uh, the subject came up of someone's father who really is a dreadful person. And everyone was talking stories that they knew, and I knew a very good story on it, even funny, but backbiting. So I told it. And on, as I drove home, I didn't feel very well. And when I got home, I threw up. And I realized if, you, if, we, if we were eating someone's dead flesh, we would throw up. We would not not be able to not throw up. So that is saying how bad it is. And we are so jaded and so veiled that we are not seeing that. And Actually, we can't do it. It's it's can't do it at all, hmm. you know. And that's what's so amazing about something like Ghazali is that he is actually um, giving us a, a concentrated map just to take care of it. He the yeah. book one is an overview of where it's going, and then of course it opens them out you know, in great depth. But I mean, it's it's yeah. These are signs too. I hadn't seen it that way. These are signs of, to us, 
if we can recognize them in ourselves that are being sent to us from God and from our, our true selves to remind us. Isn't that interesting? We're constantly being given the information, the signs, everywhere we turn. Well, and, and yeah. Yes, you're tapping into so much. It brings yeah. up a lot for me. But yeah. if we really look at the idea of Leela in the Hindu tradition and, and even Indra's net, which is such an amazing concept I want to learn more about. But, you know, this idea that Brahman, the ultimate reality, yeah. the, the unqualified being, source of existence, that it manifested the world of forms and then there's these individuals, human beings, and we're all at the center of our being, nothing but that. Right? Isn't that something? Brahman is Atman. Atman is Brahman. The, the, mm-hmm. the essence of our being is nothing but the ultimate. And so we, but then we are having these experiences of separation. Because you said it's almost like ourselves are sending us these signs, like our higher selves, our ultimate selves. And within the Sufi tradition, Ibn Arabi's like, favorite hadith to quote you mm-hmm. know, is, is the hadith of the hidden treasure. Yeah. Right. I was a hidden treasure in the divine voice. I was a hidden treasure that loved to be known. So I created. So this idea... So that's going on in us too. So we are... We come forth out of this divine outpouring theophany, but at the center of our being is connection to this ultimate reality, but we're not necessarily at the center of our being. And so it's kind of like the journey is like getting back. And... What you were describing is, and really this gets to like what Iman is or what faith is, in a true sense is like trusting that this is the return journey to the source and to the center of our being. And so then we may not understand every one of the ayat. We may not understand every one of the signs and the symbols. We may not be able to read, right? Because if you think about a foreign language, if you look at a foreign language, you look at the, the, the symbols on the, the paper, the letters, and it just means nothing to you. But like this journey of life and then the, the beautiful, you know, revealed traditions are like learning the language. And then you can start, look at the page of existence and be like, okay, now I'm starting to see what this is saying, you know, and we learn. And so we're all just like that. We're learning and, you know... Iman is like trusting that, that even if I don't understand what it all means, I know there's meaning in it. I know that there is an author, you know, and it's even amazing in our tradition. We have the idea the first things created were the pen and the, the mm-hmm. tablet. Mm-hmm. It's all, this is all writing. It's all language. And then B and we were kun fayakun, the idea of language and writing and things of that nature. So, yeah, and our signs and the horizon on some level. Yeah. You know, the outward and the inward, like, is it really so firm? Like, is it really, are we really so different? Are we really so separate? I mean, even the idea of there's nature and then there's us, right? This kind of like Cartesian dualism. Mm -hmm. It's like, but are we other than nature? Like, we are all woven into, we are all part of this revelation. Yeah, Ibn Arabi says, God is the sender, the thing being sent, the sending itself and the thing to whom it is sent. There it is. Mm-hmm. It's already there. Mm-hmm. I think part of my own, um, 
I recently, I recently had a spiritual crisis this last spring. Mm. I had a friend who died of Lou Gehrig's, and slowly over two years, she was younger than I am, was, she slowly couldn't move anymore, legs, arms, anything, and then, of course, she couldn't eat, so they had to, she had to be fed by a tube, and then she couldn't breathe. The lungs go, and then they had to be a machine down her throat breathing her. So there she was in the hospital, unable to read, to do anything, just month after month of being breathed. And I used to wake in the morning when it's dark with my rosary, and I'd know that in hospitals they all have you awake in the dark and I just pretend I was snuggled with her I'd go down and tell her I'd been doing that and then you know her bed sores were gigantic as you can imagine she was somebody who'd been like the vice president of First National Bank I mean very educated a great friend we travel together Also, she was on kidney dialysis several times a week to top it off. And she was given the opportunity to start phasing out the kidney dialysis, which would um, not be stopping breathing or eating, but would dim her out. And she chose not to. How did she choose? Like, she couldn't speak or she couldn't... How could she communicate? She could... um, Her husband could lip-read. Because they finally took the thing out of her mouth and put it in through a trach. And so... So she said, yeah, I want to At first out. she said, I do. And then she said, no. And I thought about it. And I thought about how right now she knows her husband, her grandchildren, her friends. She knows this. We know we're sitting... And we have heard... Of the other of the next world, we have heard of deathlessness of all the whole thing, but we haven't experienced it firsthand, so we don't know it. And then I thought, am I any different than her? And then I realized something amazing: that having been given the divine name to say with my rosary, having been practicing the dhikr, for 30, 40, zillion years, whatever it is, I wasn't really doing it. Because if I had been doing it, I would have known that place. I would... There, there is not even... The, there would be yakin. There would be a certainty. Not ultimate certainty, but a taste of that state of being. You know? I mean, I've seen it with some elders who know. They really know. And so it so struck me that I, it wasn't that I'd wasted all these years. We are given all the tools we need. I've been given that tool. And one day you realize what the tool is. It's like you can't not teach children about religion People say, let them find out later and make their own decisions. No, if the structure's not in there, they have nothing to work with. We have to, on faith, take on the structures. Hmm. And then, as Martin Lings said to me once, and I wrote it on a piece of paper, it was over the phone, he said, 
Life is a gradual demonstration. What's that mean? We know it all. I've all we've read Shankara, we've read the whole thing. But finally it is demonstrated that these truths are in fact reality. Yeah. So what happened was I realized one morning that what I needed to do with the Astakfara law. Forgive me, God, for what? For, it makes me cry to say this, for having anything, taking my pleasure in anything but his divine countenance, for having my goal so spread thin that it's not really for him, you know. It pretends to be. That's my own hypocrisy. I publish all this stuff, but it's really him publishing that stuff through me. The Ghazali Project has nothing to do with me whatsoever. I was just, it's going through me. Mm. But it, it, I then saw that I had, in fact, been given. And then when we say, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad, what are we really saying? It's like Meister Eckhart speaks of emptying the astagfir, emptying ourself of our lower self, and then the reforming on perfect man, true man. And that's why we are saying, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Mm. So I thought, lying there, or sitting there. Well, that's of course what the whole Sunnah is about. But maybe we don't, maybe we're not making progress. You know, maybe we know all the hadith and we try to do this and we use the sawak and we do 20 of these and we, all that stuff. But then I thought, oh, what I have to do from this moment on, it, it's like there's a wonderful Christian book called um, um, The Practice of the Presence of Christ or something like that, you know. Or, but that, I thought, what if I just didn't pretend, yes, pretended to be the blessed prophet? Now, so that means everyone you encounter, be present to them. All those things Ghazali talks about, he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was never angry, was never envious, was never any of those ten things. He never snooped, he never spied. And yet, we're all doing all of that stuff. And the, those are the very walls that keeps the nafs from relaxing into its prophetic quality. Mm. It's, it's imago day. it's, you know, the maiden, the, you know, whatever it is. Insan al-kamen. That's yeah, it. Complete. And the way Rumi says that when the light, the nur of Allah goes into the thousand courtyards, your courtyard, mine, it's the same light. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's no difference between you and me. We have our, our, our um, package that we've been given to serve with. But in terms of presence, there's no difference. But the difference arises the moment that... Um, I envy, I brag, I am angry. Walls just go right up, and everybody is walking around in a package of walls, you know? And what Ghazali is handing us is, here are the things, mm-hmm. stop them, period. The wrecking ball, yeah. tear down those yeah. walls. And start, you know, and some lady from Australia wrote us and said, the Ghazali Project for Children, no, no, it's for me, i become a conscious mother, mm-hmm. because if you start thinking about it, all those little things, you're doing it all the time. You know, just make a list of them and 
each one of them, and being impatient means impatience requires that there is trust. You know, it's not that we're just saying, here are a bunch of vices to clean up. Each one of them relates to an entire metaphysical system. Yes. It's the whole thing. So they are, I yet, coming from that mm. system, you know? And I was, yeah... Mm-hmm. I've reflected on that as well, and reading Ghazali really brought this up, and St. Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. and I was like doing this comparative virtue theory. Yeah. And what's so amazing is that it's just like you say, when we're talking to children, you know, and at the kind of most exoteric version of religion, you say, it's not nice to be mean, it's nice to be nice. And, you know, that's kind but of... But you leave it there. You leave it there, and, you know, that's kind of what... A lot of people grow up and they stay at that aspect of religion. There's Most the rules. People. Most people, they say, there's the rules. That's it. That's it. But if you really get into some of the virtue theory, the philosophy, the metaphysics, the, the, the mysticism of each tradition, what it's saying is there's a subtle reason why this is also. It's because, you know, from the Islamic perspective, Allah is reality. Yeah. And, you know, your own self-identity your illusory self is actually illusory identity because ultimately what is true in you is from the light of the supreme reality and then the names of the divine so the qualities like mercy and justice and love these are all divine names right ar-rahman al-adl al-wudud right and so the more that we take on these qualities is the more that we are purified of our illusory self, our false self, our identification with something that actually has no reality in the final estimation of things. And so we move up, if you, you know, the mountain, if to use that analogy, Mm. towards light. And really, you know, that's why I like the mirror. It's not like we become anything. It's that the mirror becomes cleansed. And so that the the light can shine more fully that Mm -hmm. that always was, you know. That's it. And so that's what this whole, that's what we're doing here. It's, and you're saying it is like, you know, and, and then you're talking about how life and what, what Martin Lings is saying to you is that life has this amazing way of being the sheikh. It will always show you. It will always teach you. And we have all this theory and we read all these amazing books of the masters. But sometimes we actually have to be put in the situation like, oh. Yeah. Now I get it. I understood it up here as a as a intellectual, rational exercise, but now I'm tasting the honey. Yeah. You know. Yes, it's interesting of all the ninety nine names, <clears throat> the one that we rely on most, his mercy, right, is the easiest to be in ourselves. It's so easy to be just to smile at someone, be mm-hmm. totally present to someone. Mercy is the easiest one. might be hard to be the truthful or to be the this or the that or the forgiving. That might be hard for somebody to forgive somebody. But um, William Chittick, in The Name and the Named, wrote an introduction <clears throat> talking about how the entire manifested creation before us, everything we see in it are different um, proportions combined of divine qualities. So that a tree might have verticality, majesty, protection, protecting birds or whatever. A daisy doesn't have any of that. So everything in nature are little isolated, Mm. coherent, like 
faithful as a dog, busy as a bee. We can make those because those are fixed, whereas man is not fixed. We can still move them around, you know, get rid of things, get things in and out. And once, um, um, when my, when my, yeah, we have to move things around. When my father died, right here, actually, his bed was here, and um, a cousin of mine said, "I we we would like you to go. We have a grief specialist, and I'm kind of a little bit of a like." I've studied death my whole life. It's been my only interest. Like, why would I go to some grief specialist? And I didn't even feel grief. He was really sick and wanted to die. So she made such a big deal out of it. I finally thought it would be easier just to go, pay the $50, and then tell her, make her happy. Make her happy that I went. So I went over, and there was this man sort of wringing his hands and tell me about your grief. And I said, well... I'm actually not experiencing grief. And he looked at me, and this was all he said. Well, what are you experiencing? And I said, well, A, loss of unconditional love. My father, no matter where I was, was concerned. I had to phone if I drove anywhere. It was really, you know, tedious. But, you know, it meant... And the other thing is, is that loss of protection... I was under his wing. Sick though he was, I was safe under him. And the man didn't say anything. And then I said, well, I suppose God, glory be to he, in his divine wisdom and plan, gives, each ch- gives children parents who embody his unconditional love and who embody his protection, and we can touch them. And the man didn't say anything. I said, and I suppose in time when he draws those beings back to his divine self, we have no place to turn for them except to the source himself. And that was the best $50 I've ever spent because I was able to move away from the symbol back to the source. And all these symbols, which are ayats, are nothing but pointing the way back. You know, And there, of course, there's a hierarchy of symbols and probably a yet too. I mean, <clears throat> um, the highest of the planets is the sun, of the metals is the gold, of the chairs is the throne, <clears throat> probably the sunflower of the flowers, or maybe the rose, the bee of the insects. I mean, we know those, and those, mm-hmm. that whole set. The eagle or the falcon of the, the eagle, birds. The lion, the mm-hmm. whole deal. Those are all interchangeable um, used by all world's traditions for their reference to God. You know, the, um, the, the, the American Indian, the winged sun disk, you know, the eagle, that kind of, all of that stuff. You know, we all, kings and all this that are by divine right. So we have to look also at symbols as divine qualities. And once I experienced some, some divine name, I had had an operation and I came home from the hospital and I didn't want to come in the house because everything's like man-made in here. Chairs and walls and square things, you know. So I insisted on being left out on the front steps. And I was sitting there, bandages and all, and there was a branch out in the front that was actually shading me. And then down the street, I could hear a dog barking. And, of course, dogs bark to protect the house. And I thought, Al-Hafiz just barked. Al-Hafiz just shaded. Mm. 
So what's going on is all those divine principles which underlie the entire thing are doing everything, forms of them. And that's, of course, the basis for metaphysics. And I honestly, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't believe in religion were it not for metaphysics. And there was no knowledge of Islam when I was in college. I majored in Hinduism because Islam, I mean, there was nothing. There was no oil. There was. I thought it was something like camels and harems and mm-hmm. Baghdad or, you know, but... Thousand and one nights. Exactly. That was the image. And so, imagine it's gone from that mm. in 1964 to this. But what I loved about studying the Vedanta, you were speaking earlier, mm-hmm. is that you have the point, you know, Atma, Brahma, you know, and it's like the one becomes the many. Kun, Fayakun. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's the divine essence and the energies. Mm-hmm. The 10,001 things. In the Tao, yeah. The, the, the yeah. Tao became two, and from the two, the yes. 10,000 mm-hmm. things. And so interestingly, of course, with the Hindu structure, which I learned from Shankara, that, um, you know, of course, you get Vishnu and Shiva, you get duality. And why do some people, I'd say, worship the destroyer? Mm. It's because there are many th- that there's many things we want to get rid of. We have to undo ourselves. So you understand that there's this not only metaphysics of of reality. I mean, look at blessings, blessings and trials. They're the same thing. We, it's. I think God is like taking, doing like this. Blessing, trial, blessing, trial. Because that's the only way we can adjust to like the plumb line, our divine center. If we were just all blessed, it, it takes a trial to get you back. It's some. It's neither. Neither or either. They're both only adjusters, you know, adjuster to that center. And then, of course, the understanding of the self I took from that too because I was raised, once I came into Mother's Kitchen here from church, feeling very holy and sacred. And she was washing dishes. And I thought, I'll offer to wash. And then I thought, I'll just go to my room. And when I got upstairs, I concluded I was a bad person. Now, you have to think how many people in the world today have concluded that to the point that they commit suicide and just do anything. It's because they have not been given for the most part in their tradition and understanding of the three selves, the fact that you have the the lower self, which is not your true self, and the observing or correcting like the conscience, but that your real self, and Ghazali talks about this, the muttamainna, right, um, is who you really are. So everybody is false identifying. And so it used to be when you... In English, goodbye was God be with you. Just as in um, the, one of the, my favorite Christian saints um, who lived in Russia, Saint Seraphim of Seraph. He lived in the taiga forest for decades, carrying rocks, talking to the animals. And when finally a man called Motovilov went to see him, he was so luminous. He was seeing the real self that had been exposed from the body he said, I could barely see his face, but I could see the lips moving with light. And the way St. Seraphim greeted him, he said, 
your godliness. Why aren't we saying that to each mm. other the way the yes. Japanese bow yes. or put sen, baraka sen, mm. or jan as the yes. Persians do? Namaste. The Namaste. In me exactly. The in you. This, this whole thing. And, and like, if you think about it in Arabic, mm. hadra is God's presence. Mm-hmm. And when we meet someone, we don't say sir, we say hadritic. Hadrat. We're mm. saying your presence of God. Mm. But we're not aware and even, of it. And even assalamu alaikum. As-salam is one of the divine names. That's right. As-salam, the divine embodiment of absolute peace, be upon you. Wow. <laughs> and who are we to even say that if it's not coming from the higher self? Mm-hmm. How, who, who could say that but the self? Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So this massive misidentification, what I'm doing with the Ghazali Children's Project, well, it all started when one little granddaughter took the toys of another and I said to her, Sophia, did you know you had, I said, two selves? She looked at me. I said, yes, you have the low, not real, false self, which doesn't help mom, which takes toys. But then you have your real luminous self, which Ghazali speaks of as the golden heart, right? The real. So I said, who took your sister's toys? And she drew herself up with dignity and said, not my true self. That is the way children need to be raised. And one of the things we're doing in the Ghazali children's website is it's called Beneath My Dignity. Listing not the naughty doings, Beneath My Dignity. Mm-hmm. Dignity, learn the word. Or even with the blessings list, say, make, you can actually make a list of all the unfortunate things and the trials in your life. It's actually, you could do it in a page. Mm. The blessing one will never end. Ever. You know, but the problem is is that children are born with that that tiff and they have the inclination toward faith, and then immediately they are put on our trip. It's mine, this is the way it's it's we're ruining them by not addressing them as who they are, you know, or speaking from who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like so on, that's, that's one, another aspect of the metaphysics is the self, misunderstanding the self, you know. And I sometimes do an image. There's a little DVD I can give you, a friend of mine did called Transmissions, where I was asked to talk about what I had learned from different teachers. And I realized the only way I can explain the lower self to people in an easy way is to do a drawing of an ocean and say, you could call that the symbol, there it is, the ocean of the waters, right? The mountain of the earth in terms of hierarchical points. So the ocean, let's pretend that's a symbol for, the, for God or the self. It is infinite, eternal, the all good, the all perfect. Then it throws up sparkles of little droplets. Whoosh! There you are, you're one, I'm one. Many of the little droplets today say there is no ocean, even though they've come from it and they are going back, you know, without choice. So the little droplet has as essence water, the ocean, Mm -hmm. but it's now individuated. It's got, let's say, a little outer, not a scum, but it's not one with the one anymore. So the problem with the way everybody is raised and they think is that they identify with the outer package 
which is finite, um, uh, temporal, not all good, not all perfect, the small self. And people are totally leading their holy daily lives. And, only, and that outer little package is all that suffers because it's, it's in duality. It is re- regretting and hoping, right? Whereas its inner part, and that has been called in classical times the golden kernel, right? A saint or, or is someone who says, I am this and identifies with the theomorphic essence to the point that it goes all the way out to the edge, and the edge is just ridiculous. And there is no death for that saint because there is nothing to die. Mm. What, can, what can die? It's like Algenaid mm. said, um, a saint is he for whom there is no past, therefore he has nothing to regret. And for he who has no future, therefore he has no hopes. And he does de- he lives in the divine radiance of the presence, you know, the concordance of the present. And there's a great story of a Spanish mer- merchant where <clears throat> he's waiting at the dock and <clears throat> his shipload of goods doesn't come. And a runner comes to tell him, we're sorry, oh merchant, but your worldly merchandise has sunk. And he looks down like this and says, alhamdulillah. About a month later, they run to him and say, Wrong, O merchant. The, the ship has arrived. Your stuff is being put on the dock. And he looked down, looked up and said, Alhamdulillah. The man said, What is this looking down? He said, In both instances, I was trying to make sure my heart didn't move. Allah. So now, that's where we always are. Mm-hmm. So how do we establish ourselves in that and be that. How would you? How do you think it can be done? How are you trying to do it? Um, you know, I mean, again, like I think when you get the scaffolding or the framework mm-hmm. of uh, you know, <clears throat> then we understand so much theoretically. Yeah. Like I mean, if we never read another book. That'd be okay. Like we've read enough of Ghazali, we've read enough like we've read so much. We know it. We know the theory. But you know, and I always I love, you know, the Sufis always use the analogy of honey. You know, how can you explain honey to one who's never tasted? Mm-hmm. And I was just reflecting on that and I said, if someone walked in this room right now mm-hmm. and they had never tasted honey, nothing you or I could say for hours or days on end yeah. would give them the taste of honey. That's and right. even if we took them into an entire library which was all PhD dissertations and research on honey, the chemical compounds and how it's found and how it's harvested and the different types and different places and the different flowers that the bees pollinate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they mastered all that. It still wouldn't give them the taste. And, but if we were just to give them a spoonful, then what's the use of all the, the library? You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, and so, you know, the the life, if you get the right framework, like, amen. And that's what's so beautiful about, you know, I think Islam and, you know, I think mm. most uh, the traditions, like, you don't, it's not a lot of learning, but it's a lot of putting into practice. You get the framework and then, mm-hmm. okay, now go live. And like, the, if you have the right framework, 
the lessons will keep presenting themselves to you. And, you know, I mean, Imam Ghazali, you're talking about the beautiful project with the, 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 the children, and I'm interested in how you presented this to them because, you know, he says there's two types of knowledge. There's ilm al-mu'amala and ilm al-mu'kashifa. There's, mm-hmm. you know, practical knowledge of how to act. And then there's And then there's mu'kashifa from kashf, unveiling, experiential knowledge. And ilm al-mu'amala, he, he's like all the outward, like how to pray, how to fast, all that stuff, including, you know, you know just how to act. That's outward knowledge. Mm-hmm. But then it, there's what you learn experientially from putting that into practice. And he said, in this book, it's going to be ilm al-mu'amala because if I were to tell you about ilm al-mu'kashifa, it wouldn't do you any good unless you had kashf. Meaning, I'm going to tell you how to get there. He's like, I'm going to tell you how to get to the honey and how to taste it, how to get in that hive without getting stung mm-hmm. and how to put you know mm-hmm. your finger in and get the honey and then put it on your tongue and then the ilm al-mukashifa will come to you and once you know that there's no need to talk about it because any then he also said mm-hmm. anytime you talk about that knowledge you necessarily mix truth with falsehood mm-hmm. because that's it's of well, a whole nother that's order. really well put, well put that's beautiful mm-hmm. yeah but yeah you were saying yeah. earlier about children and um, you said there's two types of knowledge. How did you put it? Because well, it's beautiful. The, the, the way we've translated it is that there's the practical learning, mm-hmm. you know, how to brush your teeth and mm-hmm. two and two is four. But then he speaks of it as the, the real learning that's real. And the real learning is <clears throat> how to polish your heart. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good metaphor that he uses because children can immediately latch on to it. And it really helps. They can draw their own hearts and put dots that they can erase as they focus on it. And, you know, it's um, it's amazing because Ghazali builds it all up just like, um, uh, like a diagram. He says this, and then he can say that. And before you know it, he's up to really deep stuff, but you're totally grounded. It's amazing, actually. Yeah, working on the um, <clears throat> book of purity now, and I'm halfway through prayer. I mean, I just want to tell you something, an analogy, a metaphor he uses for doing the importance of the sunnah prayer. This is like his imagery is just unreal. He said, now, the human body, the human being, what must it have to be alive? It has to have a beating heart and... I think he, I don't know whether he put a brain, but he put a few things. And then he said, you know, but you could be alive without legs or arms. People come back from the war. People can be blind or deaf or even not even have a tongue, you know. Their um, function is limited. But then imagine if you shaved off your eyebrows or cut off your ears, you'd actually be ugly. And if you lost those two. So what he's saying is that when you present to the king the gift, your prayer, would you give an ugly gift to someone that you hadn't wrapped beautifully? That, that doing all of that makes it beautiful. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. So the sunnah is the full, full thing. Isn't that quite an image, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
And he, I read something yesterday that really, talking about the importance of praying in congregation, which I usually don't, mm -hmm. but I mean, it's again like this eating the flesh thing. It's something we don't understand. Maybe you and I can get to it because we've prayed alone and we've prayed in groups. But he's saying that in the day of the early believers, that if someone um, were late and couldn't pray in congregation, people went for many days giving him, consoling him for what he had lost. And Ghazali said, imagine if you lose a child, thousands come to you to console you for a loss. But imagine that there aren't more than that that console you for having not prayed in congregation or being late. I forget which it is. Mm -hmm. That just, there's something now. There's subtle levels that we can't yes. get to on that. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And he tells, another, you brought up another story that he tells in the Ahia about a man who used to always pray in congregation in the first row for years and years, decades, yeah. maybe 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And he was always there early, always in the front row. And he cherished that. And, you know, one day he was running late and he realized, you know, he started to panic because he realized, I'm not going to be in the front row, I'm, not, I'm, gonna, oh. I'm late. Uh -oh. And then all of a sudden it hit him and he realized, oh my God, I'm not only worried about not being in the front row to worship God, but I'm also worried about not being in the front row because the other people are used to seeing me there and they'll think, oh, where's he? And then he said, all my prayers for the last 40 years have been polluted because with, they shirk, were for others. with shirk, with the subtle, subtle polytheism that I've held up these other people as idols beside God in my heart. And he said, and he, That's and a good story. said, and that man made up all the prayers of the last 40 years. He made them all. He re-prayed them in repentance to Allah. You know, so exactly what you're saying, there's levels. There's so many subtleties. And that's, you know, I think what you mm -hmm. were saying about, you know, we, we write our own veils onto our children and young people and people we interact with and take them out of their fitlar, their pure nature. Mm -hmm. And I think in our age, I was talking with a brother who drove me, drove me over here. His name is Ayub Palmer. He's a professor of Islamic studies at uh, Kentucky University. Oh, how nice. I'd love to meet him. Yeah, inshallah. But he wrote his PhD dissertation on Al-Hakim Al-Turmadi's uh, concept of walaya, concept of sainthood. What was it? Well, you know, he, he was one of the earliest scholars to really write about walaya, but he's basically saying that the awliya, there's this internal gift that people get that makes them true khalifas. They're mm -hmm. the true authorities because they're the true inheritors of the prophet. But he was one of the first people to write about that. But he said a lot in the conversation, but one thing he said that really struck me that actually really empowered me and, and made me so grateful because he said, I said, okay, well, does he say, like, what makes someone a wali? <laughs> like, he said, yes, a wali, and he writes in that book, a wali, a saint, is someone who struggles with their lower self mm -hmm. and then is defeated by their lower self, but gets up and struggles again, and then it is, is defeated time and time again, but never gives up until Allah has mercy on them. Mm -hmm. And, I'll, you know, and there's something in me that like rejoiced at that, because we can get wow. down on ourselves, because we, yeah. we, be, we become defeated, but, 
and, and it's also this humble thing. You never achieve it by your own action. It's always mm-hmm. the rahmah of Allah. Yeah. You know, and then, but what we were talking about in the car ride is that in traditional times, in all traditional cultures and societies, people knew, had this idea, and it was central to their belief that there was sanctification, there was sainthood, there was enlightened masters. Mm-hmm. And you knew where they were in your village or in your region or in mm-hmm. the mountains or in the valley or in the desert, and you would seek them out for blessing. And you knew if you wanted to take that path, perhaps now you're a merchant or now you have a shop or now you're a yeah. farmer, but if you wanted to take that path seriously, you knew where to go. And you knew where it led because you'd seen the luminous ones. And now people no longer even have that as a concept. The vast majority of people... Even Muslims? I think so. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, that whole kind of Salafi thing has like removed that for a lot of people. We intuit it maybe or we believe back once upon a time there were those type of people. But I feel like people haven't been exposed to the lived reality of that. And so, you know, it's not something that we people strive for. It's just something you are. You know, it's been reduced to an identity thing. It's like, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist. I'm the a, identity but, but it's not like this is a path to transformation that I'm on. And yeah. that's just some thoughts. But I'd love for you to, because well, you've, you've met so many amazing people. I mean, your son told me last night that you, you studied under... Uh, Joseph Campbell, even, and then you talk about Houston Smith and talk about Martin Lings. And oh, talk but about the real the... ones were the three saints of Cairo. I, That's what we went for. Well, tell me. I well, know. there were three, and okay. we're publishing right now the Fans Vitae, um, the series. It's called um, um, Three. I forget what the series is called. I didn't want to use saints because I didn't want to turn people off, mm-hmm. but three great luminaries of 20th century Cairo, all of whom died in 76. <clears throat> and we got there in 69, and there was uh, Sheikh Abdul Halim Mahmoud Al-Yurhamu, who looked like what you would have thought Jesus or Ghazali would have looked like. It was unreal. There was Sheikh Saleh Al-Jafari, mm-hmm. who had lived in the Az. He was maybe Sudanese. He lived in the Azhar Mosque for like 50 years without ever going out. He's buried near the Azhar. I love his poems. Yeah, and then there is Sheikh Hafiz Tijani, the great Tijaniya. Mm. And we would go between those three. Well, I mean, Sheikh uh, Abdul Halim Mahmoud Allah, and his book that we're bringing out is called Alhamdulillah Hazahi Hayati. That's the best thing you can say about your life, isn't it? And, but the book that's out is Sheikh Saleh Ajafari. Mm-hmm. And we once went to the Azhar courtyard on a Friday. And they brought him out. You would have never known he was like 100 years old. He was young, and his imma was so white it was lavender. And it, only when he needed help when he stood did you realize. And when I looked over and saw him, I thought, that is kingship. That's what kingship is. You know, that is it. Hmm. It's, not, it's not temporal. It's spiritual. And... So then, um, then the last book was coming out, an Italian disciple of Sheikh Haf- Hafiz Tijani. But I didn't want to have modern-day people and their children forget who was there. And I can't believe we had the opportunity, you know, to, like, sit in their presence. I'll go back to them, but I did want to say something about, you're speaking about how people are not doing this anymore. 
This again goes back to the metaphysics, let's say, of time. And in all the traditions, there is um, the concept of gold and silver, bronze, iron age. We're in the iron now. Or the different yugas. We're in the end of the Kali Yuga, so to speak. Or, let's say, in with Christianity and Islam, we're headed toward the second coming. We're in the Akhir Zaman, you know. Even apparently the Hindus are looking for the second coming because they have everybody as an incarnation of Vishnu, you know, including Jesus. It comes right along. I mean, they, they, they're the mother group. They take in everybody. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> now, it's not that this is the end of time, but it's the end of a time. And then maybe, it, who knows? We don't even know what time is. It's just a huge presence, present moment to me, the eternal now. But in all the traditions, as, this, as there's this gradual decline, there are also many uh, rises. It's not all down. There are ups as well, saintly beings and God knows what. So because of this, and we were speaking with this about Hamsa Saturday, is the second we had these recent elections and our hearts couldn't believe it. It's because pe- immediately Hamza and I spoke. Of course, it's the it's it's one of the signs, the signs, the ayat of not only time itself, but it's also we are all in time itself. Well, asri, lafi husrin, except those who encourage to truth, and to patience. And that's what I'm trying to do even with the Ghazali things. So patience means you believe and you rely and you trust and you can you can you can do it. You know, that's and so so also having an understanding of time, not just your own time, but these general cycles. Hamza said it's like a tip of an iceberg sticking up. And those are current events. We look out and see Syria and Trump, and all the rest of it. And it's very easy to become totally scared, disheartened, in face of apparent chaos. But it's not apparent chaos. Because if you go beneath the surface, there are the patterns. And these are all based on the underlying metaphysical realities of contraction, expansion, the whole thing. So actually, if you know these signs... You know, they speak of the signs of the times, but these signs about time, you can understand what's going on. You can bear witness to what's going on. And Seda St. Nasser said something amazing. Years ago, we had the first in the Merton series, Merton and Sufism, was presented here in, um, at Bellarmine College. And he said, people always ask me uh, about the reality, the nature of evil. He said, actually, evil is just separation or distance. So if you think about kun fayakun, the beginning, and then the spiritual origin of the universe, Shabda Brahman, a symphony of sound, or all these divine principles going out and now being clothed in everything you can imagine, because God is all potentiality, so everything has to come out. The things we find beyond belief are coming out. But you see, 
the companions who were closest to the prophet, they could have been expected to do everything because there was no distance. Whereas we are taking it on hearsay and with very little example. But at the same time, the, the, and this is about the Salafis and everything you were saying, if you think about it, as a thing goes out from its spiritual and it distances, if its spiritual nature is distancing, it becomes more material. And the more material it gets, the heavier it gets, like a snowball. And then it goes faster and faster. So we're seeing in the last hundred years what would have been unimaginable to our grandparents who drank tea, you know, it was just dressed correctly, you know. So if one understands the underlying principles, one can just say, Amin ya Rab, and this is certainly a reminder to me to not be distant from that spiritual dimension of myself. Mm -hmm. Let me not get rolled up in mm -hmm. the literal dimension, which is the heavy outward. And that's what Ghazali is talking about. He said, for example, in the, the Book of Purity, I start that with the children with a story because, you know, it's really heavy stuff, even for me. And just, So I, I told a story at the beginning because the children in the Ghazali books, it begins with some children in a town and they're talking honestly among themselves. I really don't know why I have to pray. I mean, I could believe. You know, Dad's upset if I'm late for my prayers, etc., etc. And they don't, they don't want to talk to their parents about this. We'll just be lecturing to them or mm -hmm. preaching to them. So they find they pass by a garden. It's a forgotten garden in the town. So there's the symbol of the forgotten garden, you know. Jenna, Janina. And they go in and they find a, a little hidden corner, a sanctuary, with a tree with flowering blossoms drooping down. And they decide this will be their secret meeting place to talk honestly. And then they think, well, who will we get to, to answer our questions? And then they say, what about that old elderly man, Hajj Abdullah, who sits always in the park and birds are around him, you know. And so they went to him, the, the man that anyone passing any of their parents would always bow and touch their hearts, out of respect for his sagacity or his elderness or his peace or his presence. And we're not calling him a Sufi saint. He's, he's the reality, the elder, the person. It should be the common elder, if you think about it. And... So they go and he agrees to start coming. So he says, the way, how can I teach you? But we, I will, the great proof of Islam, Al-Ghazali will be our teacher. And that's what's so great about this project we're doing is he can be all of our teachers. They're sheikhs and sheikhs and sheikhs and they have this opinion and that. But this is beyond that. This is someone who even could say in his day, you know, I wondered... I thought, I noticed that the children of Jews were raised as Jews, Buddhists, Buddhists. Who were we all before God said, here's, our parents said, here's our package? Who is underneath of that package, that fitra which is not qualified, even into any one of the packages? That's something, isn't it? And once I was thinking, I mean, regarding the world's faiths, every single one of them has the same methodology. Fasting, prayer, pilgrimage, 
and charity. All of them have it. So each of them have structures which resonate. Mm -hmm. And we are all sitting in our structure. It's like furniture. And we talk about it all the time. And then we say, the structure of those people, they're going to hell. They're not doing. We're always talking about other people's structures, our own structures, our neighbor's structures, talking about and what I thought to myself, do all these structures intend, if you should really do all those things, <clears throat> those rights, what, does it, what do they have in mind as the product? That is someone like, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who is humble and serves, humility and service. Mm-hmm. It, like the Tibetans could say, uh, uh, empty and mindful, like aware, right? So, so if all of them are trying to produce that, why is it that very few people in any of the traditions are consciously trying to imitate their founder? They think they are, or they talk about it, they do tons of stuff, but basically it's all structure-bound and all totally focused on the outward nature of the structure rather than the inward, what the structure is intended to do, to the point where in the book of um, purity, uh, Ghazali tells about a time when the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, was pra- they all, everybody prayed in sandals. Well, they were pro- probably out in the desert. And uh, maybe in one of those sand things with the logs around it, the, you know. Mm-hmm. And then... then Jibreel whispered in his ear something like, there's some dirt on your sandals. So he took off his sandals, and everyone took their sandals off. (laughs) It's not that we um, want to walk into mosques and track mud in and then put our heads down, and that's clear. But one of the men said, there's a hadith, he said, you know, I really hated it when we started taking off our sandals. He said, it would serve us right if somebody stole them while we were praying. Isn't that funny? But the story I tell them, that Hajj Abdullah tells them when it gets into purity to get their attention is, once upon a time, there was a scholar who knew it all in the town. And he was standing in his doorway with his assistant nearby and an old man, you know, with a stick and tattered robes probably came up and said, Oh, scholar, what is wudu? And the scholar was saying, You know, old man, I mean, you've lived here your whole life. You know, how could a person of your age not know what wudu is? And the old man kept insisting, I want to know, what is wudu? And the scholar thought to get rid of him, the easiest thing would be just to show him how to do it. So there was a sink down in this hallway, And he did it all, and then he said to the old man, now, you do as I did. And the man got it all mixed up. He did everything wrong. So the scholar said, barra, out, you know. And the old man went off toward his part of town. And the scholar turned to his assistant or doorkeeper and said, you know, that's pretty strange to be in a Muslim town, have something like this, follow and just check out what's going on here, if you will, after a while. The doorkeeper came back and said to the scholar, I'm sorry to tell you this, 
but that old man is our village saint. It's the sage, the wali of the village. <clears throat> so the scholar walked humbly to his area, knelt down before him in front of him, and said, O scholar, O, O elder, what is wudu? And he said, as you wash your hands, you say, Allah, forgive me for what I have done, and please make what I do in future be pleasing. When you rinse out your mouth, forgive me for what I've said. May what I said in the future. My, my feet, may they take me toward only things that will please you, etc. And Ghazali said, it really makes me cry saying this, that otherwise you're just going through motions. And to think how quickly one does wudu and how quick and not thinking and the whole thing. And it's not like we've not done it because that's what it really is. And then one of the little girls in the story says, because the children are concerned of how they're going to polish their heart. Oh, my God, if all we have to do is, like, make these little prayers throughout our do think we'll be polishing our heart even more, you know. And, and, like, you know, just each thing, it's more than we can ever rise up to, everything he's saying to do in the prayer. But even to just even begin, oh, then Ghazali talks about um, being present and not distracted in your prayer. And he makes a big deal about how you should be so throughout your prayer. And then he's, he's wonderful. He says, but that's really hard to do. So if you can just, and of course the, the old uh, Hajj Abdullah, he's of course Hajj because he's made the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Abdullah mm-hmm. says to the children, but... There's a, if you can do one thing in your prayer, just when the, you do the opening takbir, Allahu Akbar, if you can be present. And one of the ways Ghazali tells you to be present. And of course, we have to remember, everything Ghazali says is either hadith or Quran. So, as uh, Abdul Hakim Witter is pointing, that Ishya is a commentary on the Quran, but in a usable order you know, that takes you there. But... He said that if I couldn't tell the children all of this because it was too scary, an idea. Um, But he said, imagine you're on the sirat, on that little thread between this world and the next. I could put that, but I couldn't put that there was fire below. We're not scaring children anymore. Mm -hmm. It's over. We want them to love their dean and take pleasure and have fun watching themselves. Fun. The joy mm-hmm. of polishing the heart. It's over. No more fear of hell. It's just, you know, I know Saudi children that are drinking and taking drugs because they said, we're, just going, we're already going to hell. I mean, we've listened to the chutbahs, you know. So then, Ghazal, he says that if you can, as you're crossing the bridge, Imagine that between your eyebrows, the Kaaba is there, you know. But say you didn't even imagine you were on the bridge. Imagine that in the takbir, if you just took up your hands and said Allahu Akbar and used that as the focus point from behind, you know, it's like the third eye kind of deal, you know, here, you were standing before the Kaaba, you know. 
And if you could hold that just through the takbir, that, he says, infuses the all. And then in time, you can lengthen it. Isn't that beautiful? And then, of course, the children said, yeah, imagine if we went to visit a friend and the whole time we were talking to the friend, we were thinking about something else and not even really talking to them. That's the way we are in prayer. We're not even, we're not. And yet Ghazali said, my God, I mean, could you get in to see a president or a king, just walk in the door and walk straight up to them? No. But Allah is already always there, ready to, ready to listen to you, you know, to be with you. I mean, are we kidding? This is so great for us as parents, you know, to, like, have access to this stuff. It's all in there, but I mean, who could plow through that stuff? And most of it's not in English, even to this day. And the problem with much of it, Baraka, is that some of the translations that have been done over the centuries have been done as, like, doctoral yeah. theses by people who weren't at that level of Arabic, which is the level of the spiritual realization. They did it literally or politically or all the levels at which Arabic can be understood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and even, I mean, it was written, I mean, Razali died at 1111, you know, the mm-hmm. common era. So it was written a thousand years ago. So mm-hmm. even though he is so clear and concise and he takes you step by step, it takes a while, it took me a while mm-hmm. to be able to enter into his world. Like, you need a lot of pre- prerequisite. And, and and the beautiful thing about Ghazali is he was mm-hmm. writing for his time. Like, he mm-hmm. was engaging the intellectual currents of his time and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a... Even if you understand Arabic perfectly, or even if the translation into mm-hmm. English is perfect, there's a whole other translation, which is from one world a thousand years ago to our present. I know. There's, that has to be th- thought of, too. Something William Chittick told us. We've just brought out his Mebudi, the tafsir. You can look at it in a little while. Please. And he mentioned that um, because we have the two bodies, you know, the physical body and the mm-hmm. body of the resurrection. He said, sitting here, you can remember you had a toothache, but you can't, exp- you can't remember what that felt like. You can knew- know it was very painful, but you can't re-experience the pain of a toothache. You can't even remember the taste of chocolate. You just know it was good. But you can remember exactly if you've hurt someone's feelings. You could relive it, you know, and you don't forget it. It's really something. You know, it's, it's like, because the, those are the things you have to deal with. Those are the real things that have to be atoned for in yourself, you know, that you have to ask amends for, that you have to be forgiven for. And those things are hyper clear. You you can't feel the suffering of a toothache, but you can feel the suffering of having hurt someone's feelings. Isn't that brilliant? And it, you can feel the joy of having brought someone else joy. That's right. You can experience that, like you yeah. knew. Yeah, and uh, and you know, but what you're doing in Fons Vitae, you know. It's so amazing because you're bringing a lot of this out. And what I think in this age, you know, and I engage with, I mean, I grew up in the very liberal West Coast, Mm -hmm. Seattle and the San Mm -hmm. Francisco area. And, you know, so many people there in in those environments, you know, they're one of two things. They're either completely secular. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or they're kind of spiritual but not religious, that whole mm-hmm. new thing. And, you know, unfortunately, and then I've traveled a lot through Europe, and most of the people that are kind of rejecting religion or re- rejecting the sacred, re- rejecting the traditional wisdom traditions, most people, mm. they're actually doing so without a deep understanding of those That's what they're it. rejecting. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. they're rejecting the kind of superficial, yeah. oh, you believe in a sky daddy. Yeah, that kind you of thing. You know what yeah. I mean? That's kind Wh- of Which you should reject. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. And I also heard William Shittick, uh, I read once he wrote in one of his books, he said, uh, when I read someone who says, I don't, I don't believe in God, he said, I always say to them, well, I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in also. Yes, that's really well put, isn't it? And I think, you yeah. know, what you're doing this great service and you're translating, you know, so many of the works of the great masters mm-hmm. and, and mystics and philosophers and theologians and stuff that expose people to the depths of what s- certain people are getting at. Because it's one thing if you really, really understand a Ghazali or a Mablana Rumi or a, uh, you know, Abdul Qadir Jilani or Ibn Atayla or and then you could go to or uh, say Thomas Aquinas and Mr. Eckhart or Shankara or mm-hmm. you know these great masters in different traditions if you really understand it and then you reject it that's one thing but to just mm-hmm. you know it's very dangerous mm-hmm. this kind of hubris of modern people where it's like well they lived over yeah. a few decades ago they didn't have the internet they didn't have Wikipedia what could they really have known yeah. they were ignorant you know yeah. they believed you know, that they're, you know, in this kind of Ptolemaic universe where they believe that the heavens were celestial and this is the terrestrial, you know what I mean? But, and you said something, and I heard, I've heard other people say this, you know, is that certain kind of educated and also just people that have a certain metaphysical, philosophical, mystical bent the kind of ritualistic outward form of religion, it actually is going to have no interest to them. It's going to serve no purpose for them unless they kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of like the end goal, the Mm -hmm. top of the mountain. Like Mm -hmm. taking the path is not going to entice them until you say, okay, but let me explain to you a little Mm -hmm. bit about the top of the path and what Mm -hmm. it leads to. Mm -hmm. And then you can see the various symbols as helping us to reintegrate our mini selves our sh- our yeah. shattered self our, our spread self and integrating it into oneness and that's why for me when i was 20 years old you know i was really into rumi because i was a writer and musician and really into sufi poetry but i was kind of like a bit arrogant and like well organized religion is silly because people always screw it up and people mm-hmm. do always screw it up mm-hmm. but um it wasn't until I read Ibn Arabi's thought through William Chittick, actually, mm-hmm. the Sufi Path of Knowledge, that it really humbled me intellectually because I was like, wow, I'm, I'm encountering something beyond my intellect. And, and then I was able to see the wisdom in the five-time-a-day prayer, the waking up early, mm-hmm. the wudu, washing yourself before prayer. Mm-hmm. But I had to get exposed to that. And that's kind of what I was getting at earlier where... Mm-hmm. If you live in a traditional society, because if you read Imam al-Haddad, and actually, you know, that was really influential, and you put all those books out, Fons Vitae, mm-hmm. and I read those 
very early on. You had to on. get the newest one just came out. Yeah, and I was, you know, those became very central to my early path, my early 20s. And, mm-hmm. and through that, I went to Turim, to Hadramaut. You've been South. there? Yeah, when I was 21 years my old. My goodness. After Nine months after I became Muslim. You must know Yahya Rodas. Yeah, he's a really good friend of mine. Oh, wonderful. And I met him there, actually. Oh, how lovely. But when I'm getting at you know, Imam al-Haddad, he says... He cautions against reading the works of Ibn Arabi and others. And for a while, after he said that, I stopped reading Ibn Arabi. But then eventually I started reading again. But what I thought about in that is, if you live in a very traditional universe, which is imbued with the sacred, Tareem, it's like everyone is waking up at 3 a.m. and worshiping and chanting. And your whole life is just this pure sacred remembrance. And every night there's... There's chanting and there's it's singing just hard to and, believe, and there's living saints that you're seeing at every moment. And in that environment, to read these lofty metaphysical works before you're ready, it's not going to actually help you. Because you've got the living examples, just implement, implement, yeah, implement, yeah. implement. But I've often thought about in our time, people don't know what sanctity is. People don't know that saints exist and sages and transformed and illuminated beings. People haven't experienced that hadra, that mm-hmm. presence yeah, that yeah. is more eloquent than any tongue can ever indicate. And so I think in our time, people need to know about that. They need to know that's a potentiality and that is really the fruit of the tree of what is called religion mm-hmm. are these individuals. And, you know, Imam Ghazali, hujjat al-Islam, the proof of Islam because mm-hmm. When you see someone transformed by a spiritual path and practice, the proof is in the pudding. Like, it can't not be real because you see reality before you. That's right. And their presence transforms you more than any book or anything. And that's why, you know, all these true, you know, traditions, they are not in books, but in, in transmission. Someone who sat with someone who sat with someone who sat with something. That's valued so much. And one of my Buddhist friends, uh, Vinny Ferraro, he's a really beautiful brother in the Bay mm-hmm. Area. He used to live on my block. And um, he told me like a, a saying of the Buddha, mm-hmm. which is that the Buddha said on his deathbed, he said, eventually our, the chain of transmission will be cut in our tradition. And when it's cut, don't revive it. There's this idea that once the, the chain of transmission itself is broken, then it's, 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 it's gone. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You need the living, the living, living tradition. And so, um, mashallah. You know. That's something, isn't it? Well, Ghazali ends the Book of Knowledge by making a comparison of two trees, a tree that is straight and a tree that is crooked. And he said, each of us, um, everything casts a shadow. And the way we are is what people will copy. And what do we want? Everything we're doing every minute copied. And then we, I pull that in to point out that we are all teachers. And children are teachers too. And really, this idea of these awliya and these saints, that's everyone's potential because it's their true nature. It's the nature of the fitra. So what our bounden duty of being human beings is to really, to the degree and in degrees, approach that state because that is what is how we give to others. There's no other way. 
I remember, um, oh, this is a, this is a story, actually, you know, um, I was publishing a book of um, Rowan Williams, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury and an old friend of mine from Cambridge, and it was on Thomas Merton, and my husband and I were at a, at a great mm, land base in South Carolina owned by friends of ours, and they are hunters, and they were all out on horses shooting quail. Well, I don't shoot or anything. So I stayed in a log cabin to edit uh, Rowan's book. And I, it was the ideal. I don't hear their interruptions every minute, phone calls, but it was like an open log fire 30,000 acres away from cell phone towers, a lamp, you know, a cup of tea, a yellow legal pad. And I was starting to work on it. And I read about four or five pages. And then a friend of mine who is coming down with Alzheimer's knocked on my door and she said, I wonder if you'd come. I think I've lost my necklace. So I went and found it. And then about 20 pages more, she knocked again and said, I wonder if you'd help me with my Christmas card invitation list. And all of a sudden, my nafs, from head to toe, I was on fire with, oh, no, this was my day, you know. But, of course, I had to go and do it. And then I read about eight more pages, and Rowan mentions, he said, Merton said, <clears throat> in one sense, we are all monks because all we have to give one another is presence. There's nothing we can give each other but presence. And then I had this flash to a friend of mine who's a professor of Sufism, and her daughter was born very ill with spina bifida. It meant that during her entire childhood, she would have epileptic fits, you know, pee on herself, no friends, the whole thing. And she wrote an essay for a volume I was the editor for called Voices of Islam with Vincent Cornell and Omid Safi. And she said, there are three ways you can deal with that kind of a thing, having a child like that. You could, if you had money, pay somebody. You can do it yourself, and every time there's an incident, think, as I did, oh, no, not again. She said, on the other hand, you could, I'm, I'm saying pretend to be, but it's not pretend to be the best blessed prophet. It's to practice the sunnah of, to imagine, take on the imitation of, you know, like the imitation of Christ. She said, or you could imitate the blessed prophet who would never think, oh, no, not again. He would simply be utterly present, now this, now I will help this child. So I thought, oh, my God. And then the door knocked again, and this friend of mine, who's in very bad shape, came all the way across the room and stood between me and the fire. And I moved my focus center of consciousness from the brain, which looks out and judges, it's dualistic. Everything it meets, it sees as other. And I just moved that point to the heart. And I looked up at her unitively with love and acceptance. I, I took on the prophetic practice, you know, of presence. And, 
Of course she knew it. She said, oh, I have a friend. But also it was ecstatic because I was acting from my true self. And if people could just get into the inner sunnah, not the outer stuff, but it that's there as a structure, but the inner experience of yes. all that, they would be so happy because it's their true nature. Yes. We're not asked, being asked to do anything except be who we already are. That's right. And that's it, because you can hear in the sunnah, you can hear the hadith about when the Prophet mm-hmm. he never just turned his head to someone, he turned his entire body to them. Wow. You can hear that outwardly, wow. but what you're saying is like, but what did it mean for him? to turn his entire body and you it's like he turned his entire being he turned his entire that's what being. we should be imitating that's it that's it and because you can turn your entire body to someone and be with your mind way off in another continent another universe but no and alhamdulillah we should be doing this in front of each other hmm. we should be doing it before children before god because if we don't do that, what are we teaching? What, what kind of doing? tree are we anyway? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what kind of a shadow are we casting? Mm-hmm. Kind of a yucky shadow. That's beautiful. Well, thank you. Amen. I think that's good. That was good. Alhamdulillah. Good. Alhamdulillah. Can we have a du'a from you? English is fine. Oh. May Allah subhanahu wa taala may He draw us back into his divine presence with hearts purified. Amin ya Rab. Amin ya Rab.